Welcome to Dentist Puns and Money. I'm your host, Sean Terrell, and my guest on today's show is Robert Montgomery III, Esquire. Robert is an attorney and the founder of Your Dental Lawyer, a boutique Philadelphia law firm focused on the unique business needs of dentists. Rob is also co-host of the popular Dental Amigos podcast. In our discussion, we focus on the legal considerations for a dentist selling their practice, including the exit paths most commonly taken, the legal documents necessary for a practice transition, and how practice real estate factors into the deal. As a reminder, our affiliated firm, Dentist Exit Planning, helps dentists with personal financial planning as they transition away from clinical, specifically how to reduce that massive lifetime tax bill and how to replace that clinical income and owner income using other assets. If you are interested in financial guidance on your exit from dentistry, schedule an initial consultation with us on our website, which is dentistexit.com. That website again, dentistexit.com. And with that introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Robert Montgomery III. All right, Robert Montgomery III, Esquire. Welcome to Dentist Puns and Money. I'm excited to hear your story and for our conversation today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Sean. I'm excited to uh, chat with you. My favorite place to start is just with some background on uh, your journey for the audience. Could you share a little bit about how you've reached this current point of your career? Sure. I've been practicing law for over 27 years. I've had my practice for over 25. And during that time, uh, as long as I've been a lawyer, I have represented dentists in one capacity or another. At various points of my practice, it's been a higher or lower percentage, but it's usually been, you know, at, at very least around 50% of what we do. And then really over the last decade, it became the sole focus of the practice. In recent years, we started doing a little bit more work for other uh, healthcare professionals, such as veterinarians, optometrists, and some other medical specialists. But we're still overwhelmingly focused on the in the dental world, and so we help dentists who are buying and selling practices, doing startups with lease reviews and negotiations, bringing on partners, hiring associates. We help young dentists review their associate agreements. So basically, all of the of business, M&A, corporate, real estate, employment, HR stuff that goes comes up in the in the dental world, we're helping with. We're not litigators. We'll help people sometimes try to avoid litigation. I started my career way back when as primarily a litigator, and it's taken over the last 27 years. I've managed to phase that out entirely, thankfully. And so we're, uh, we're business lawyers. And we represent dentists in most major markets around the country, one of the main exceptions being California, but we're, we're active and involved in, in most other places. Very good. So this podcast has evolved to focusing mostly on dentists that are planning to exit clinical practice sometime in the near future. So for our conversation today, what I was hoping to focus on was dentists that are, that are selling their practice and sort of all the legal considerations there. But I'd like to just start high level with outlining kind of a handful of the various potential scenarios for a, a seller and a buyer. You know, as one example, there could be a dentist that owns 100% of their practice and they could sell that practice to an associated employee. Uh, could you kind of start there and share the other most common exit scenarios that, that you encounter for a seller and a buyer? And then 
maybe once we highlight kind of the main ones, we could dive a little deeper into each of those scenarios. Sure. So, I mean, what you're talking about is a sale to an associate, that could be a sale of 100% of the practice or some fractional interest in the practice. Also look at selling a practice to a, a third party and you know, somebody who's not involved in the practice. And, and those types of deals also have different options as well. Depending on the size of the practice, you could be selling to a large corporate group or to another dentist who's planning on practicing dentistry and continuing with the legacy in that, in that practice. So a lot of that depends on the nature and the size of, of a particular practice as to what, which way to go and what opportunities present themselves. And, you know, again, depending on the, the particular seller and practice owner, some are better options for, uh, for others than they are for some. So maybe let's dive into the pros and the cons for, for each of those, those main three or four options that you mentioned, starting with the sale 100% of a practice from an owner dentist to an associate that he's, he or she has worked with for some period of time. Sort of what are the pros and the cons of, of that exit path for a dentist? Well, the pro with that, is, well, the main one would be that you're selling the practice to somebody who knows the practice, knows the patients. There's already some goodwill. They already have some goodwill baked into the into the practice. So from a transition standpoint, that could go you know, rather smoothly. And of course, if you're a seller and you sell your practice to your associate, hopefully you're not paying a broker to uh, uh, to broker that transaction because you're not that broker's not bringing you a buyer. So you may save some money in that regard as well. So if things come together nicely, that that could be a good option. And you know, obviously, a lot of it depends on the on the wherewithal of the associate, associate's ability to get financing, associate's desire to buy the practice too, which is not a given these days, Sean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you have a podcast that you're involved with in Well, the Dental Amigos with uh, Dr. Paul Nacho, and I was listening to a couple episodes in preparation for our conversation today, and you were in the episode I was listening to talking about a scenario where an owner would sell less than 100% interest in the practice to someone that they plan to work with for some period of time. Uh, how common is that scenario in your experience? And maybe again, to keep with the same theme, what are some of the pros and the cons with, with that as, a, as an exit strategy? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's a fairly common strategy. Of course, it depends again on the size of the practice. It needs to be a practice that's big enough for for two dentists or at least two dentists to be able to practice there and then also to be partners there. So if it's a, a practice that's, just say, hypothetically, that grosses $700,000 a year, that's probably not a good two-doc practice as, as a partnership or either from an owner and an associate. But if the practice is the right size and it's a good fit, then that is something that is workable. problem with selling a partial interest, though, is what is the exit strategy for the sale of the remainder of the interest. So, you know, if you sell 25% of the practice to an associate, how and when are you going to sell the other 75%? And what are you going to do if that associate can't buy or changes their mind or doesn't want to buy the other 75%? Now, you're holding on to this asset that is, you know, somewhat illiquid and not as marketable. You know, same thing, 50-50 great. You have a 50-50 partner. You've been able to monetize half of that value of your practice. But again, what is the, what is the remaining uh, the strategy for, for selling the remaining interest? And you know, again, in a practice that's large enough where you may have potentially 
a large corporate buyer or a DSO, if you've already sold 50% to your associate, is that practice going to be attractive to that kind of buyer? And if you do have a two-partner practice, then generally could be large enough to have that kind of uh, that kind of potential buyer pool. So, you know, in bringing that partner on, you're kind of putting all your eggs in, in one basket. You know, like if you just go ahead and want to sell your practice to somebody, you have a seemingly, if it's a good practice, a multitude of, of buyers and you can pick and choose and, and who you want to sell to and when. But again, once you've sold half of that to that uh, associate, if that associate doesn't buy the other half, you, you could have some trouble. Interesting, interesting points that you raised there. Is it better in most scenarios in your experience to, if you have a dentist that wants to remain involved in clinical and or maybe needs to remain involved in clinical, but they want to sell the practice and take some money off the table to sort of uh, switch roles, I guess, if you will, and, and, and sell to their associate and then come to work back as the associate to avoid some of those potential pitfalls that you mentioned? Yeah, that definitely could work. So you sell 100% and become your associate associate at that point. Your associate owns the practice and you stick around for a couple of years and get paid you know, based on your the, the dentistry that you provide and just like, and you're compensated like an associate of the practice. It's definitely an option. You know, a lot of it depends on, again, the, the particular situation and what the individual is looking to do, how old they are, how much longer they want to practice. There are a lot of variables, you know, and I, I'm very much a big fan, Sean, of there's no right, one right way that everybody needs to do it because everybody has a, a different situation. And a lot of times people will say to us, like, how should this be done? You know, and that's, well, let's get to know each other. Let's have a conversation. Let me understand what your goals are, what some of your limitations are, and what you're looking for, what your vision is. And then we could talk about best ways to go. And, you know, with all this, you know, if you're looking to sell your practice and walk away, then you know, a sale to a to a large corporate group or a DSO just may not be that may not be the right thing for you. And depending on what the cash flow looks like of doing a deal with your associate where you sell hundred percent and then remain on as an associate, you may make less money. Well you probably will as an associate than you do as an owner. So then how much less money do you do you make? So, you know, if let's just say that as the difference between being a practice owner and an associate is, you know, $150,000 a year, and you work for your associate for three years after the closing, still coming to the office every day, still doing a lot of the same things. You may have rid yourself of some headaches, but probably not all of them. You're making $450,000 less over that three-year period being an associate as opposed to a practice owner. Does that work for you? So, some people might say, yeah, it's great. I, I, I just, I'm sick of dealing with all the nonsense. I don't want to be an owner anymore. And I don't care if I make a little bit less. Other people, if they're looking to maximize the, the return and the total sale and the, 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 the return on the deal, that may not be an attractive option. So it really, it depends again on the size of the practice and, and what your options are. Do you have an associate who has the wherewithal to not just buy part of the practice, but to buy the rest of it. Again, like if it's a large practice that maybe it's worth $3 million and the associate's able to get a loan now for a million and a half, but then three years from now when you're, you want to retire, banks are like, yeah, we're not giving you another million and a half. You're already into us for that. You know? So you could find yourself, like I said, in a kind of in a, in a dead end with that. And it's you know, kind of like the old, uh, 
you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest when uh, Mr. Martini keeps trying to uh, bet uh, half a cigarette when he's playing cards with Jack Nicholson. And Jack, Jack Nicholson says, Martini, how many times do I have to tell you? You can't bet a half a cigarette, you know? So it's like trying to sell half a practice can be, can be a challenge. We touched on it briefly, but uh, the, uh, the other option is to sell to a corporate entity or a DSO. That's more, I think if I understand correctly, a 100% sale scenario. But as you also mentioned, there's usually a work back that's a part of that deal, at least for a few years. Maybe uh, to sort of close the loop on the different exit strategies, what are some of the pros and the cons with the, the sale to the corporate or to a DSO? Yeah, uh, a lot of those are not 100% sales anymore. Um, most of the deals that we're seeing in the market these days are structured where people are selling 60 or 70 or maybe 80% of their practice to the DSO and then retaining the balance for some period of time. Okay. Usually that's for the same period of time as what their, their post-closing employment agreement commitment is. So let's just say a somewhat typical deal, somebody sells 70% of their practice, they retain 30% ownership in a newly created joint venture that manages the practice. And then they agree to a four-year employment agreement with that buyer. And at the end of that four-year term, they might be the option of selling the remaining interest, or they might be required to sell that remaining interest, depending on how that's structured. You know, either a, you know, a put right or a call option, refer to that as. So, um, that that is a fairly typical structure now with DSOs. It allows them to keep the doc involved and focused on the practice because they still have some skin in the game, and uh, and keep them around as a as the dentist in the practice. And it also allows them to keep some cash in reserve to go out and do other deals instead of having to sink, uh, and instead of having to buy 100% of the practice. Downsides just dealing with those those practices, even though it's a, a sale of a dental practice, Sean, those two things just couldn't be more different. You know, that you sell to an owner operator, it's you know, it's somewhat an amicable transaction where both sides want the practice to, to transition well. Seller wants that practice to continue to on in the path and for his patients to be served. And obviously the buyer has you know vested interest because they're paying all this money and borrowing this money. They want the, the, the transition to go well. And it's sort of like a happy thing. When you're selling to a DSO, generally DSOs, they're in this to make money. And most of them are trying to, quote unquote, win the transaction. And so the way these deals are staffed, they're larger deals. Generally, those buyers are represented by large firms, law firms with multiple lawyers who are you know, not trying to set up a win-win, but trying to set it up so it's in their client's best interest. So there's a lot of little traps and landmines in those deals. They're documented with a lot more complexity. So it requires just more time, more lawyers for the seller to be able to, to keep up and make sure that you're able to turn documents around and see things and have the time not to miss things. You know, it's sort of like we like playing basketball. You know, if the other side has five people, you can't show up with two uh, and expect to, to be competitive and kind of the same thing with this. And so. Where I've seen people get burned is where they've tried to find a, you know, the cheapest lawyer uh, to do that or put pressure on that lawyer to, to not bill much, to not staff that kind of matter the way it needs to be staffed to be able to do it to ensure that they're, that they're protected. 
And um, if you don't keep your eye on those types of buyers, they'll they'll get you every time. It's so interesting when you were talking about sort of that scenario where a dentist sells 70% and stays on retaining 30% ownership to be sold potentially three or four years later, the light bulbs were going off in my head, you know, what's the valuation of that practice? How is that determined three or four years later? And then all the ins and the outs of that, the legal documents as part of that deal, as you alluded to, need to be fairly uh, airtight. And to your point, I think you alluded to it as well. The due diligence and uh, you know checking under every nook and cranny in terms of the documents and the language in those documents becomes of the utmost importance, <laughs> especially when the other side uh, yeah. is well armed with uh, legal rep- representation on their side. I think that's sort of a nice segue into sort of the the big legal documents that are involved in the transaction or the sale of a dental practice. Could you sort of hit high level on what are, what's sort of the standard documents that are are involved? And is it more than one or is it is everything bunched into one or is it is it parceled out in your experience? Once again, this is a this is a common an- answer to your question, uh, Sean. It depends. Um, I'm familiar so, with it. Depends. Uh, if you're looking <laughs> right, all depends. If you're selling hundred percent of the practice to somebody, generally you're looking at an asset sale with an asset purchase agreement. If the seller's staying on for some period of time then may have an associate agreement as well as part of that that deal. If there is a sale of a, a fractional interest, perhaps to an associate or somebody else, a buy-in as we refer to those, depending on how that's structured, you could have a stock purchase or a membership interest purchase agreement. You may contribute those assets to a new company and then do that as, a, as an asset purchase. So a couple different ways to go with that. And then in that scenario, though, the most important document is going to be the the partnership agreement, the operating agreement or shareholders agreement going forward. And that's going to have all the provisions in there as to what the partner's respective rights and obligations are. Can they sell their interests to a third party? What happens if one of them becomes sick or disabled or dies, loses their license, all that stuff? You know, what is the exit strategy for the original owner? Is the other the new partner going to be required to, to buy them out in three five years? How do you value that interest? All that stuff and those details get covered in that document. And you know, as, as I said, that that's really the where the action is and the most important document in a in a buy in like that. And that's what makes those transactions more complicated in the owner operator world and also riskier and definitely not like stock documents. You know, they're certain things that you can kind of get away with forms and tweaking forms without a whole lot of consulting and, and modification. That's one area where you can, you know, like every dental practice is different. Every deal is different. You can't just roll out and say, here's the partnership agreement that we use, you know, a hundred times. And there are a lot of brokers that will broker deals where they're preparing documents and they give their, all of their buy-in clients the identical operating agreement. And they're the deals and they're the situations where people find us after the fact and say, look what I signed myself up for. Now, what can I do? You know, and, and that's not one of our favorite conversations. We'd rather be involved at the outset and, and, and set things up properly and head them off. But definitely that is the area where this is not one size fits all. And it's important for the lawyer to understand what the party's intentions are, what the goals are, and what the visions are. And then to capture that in those documents fairly and adequately doesn't mean that you need to 
again, set it up so that there's a winner and a loser in that partnership. In fact, I tend to recommend not doing that. You know, there's no partnership or relationship that I know of that you can have a winner and a loser that's going to be sustainable over the long haul. It needs to be something that's fair for both parties. Otherwise, it's kind of a, a recipe for, for the breakup and the divorce. And you know, I don't really feel like you're doing anybody a, a service by setting them up for that. But uh, it definitely is something that requires more involvement and more planning and more focus than a lot of the other legal transactions, documents, agreements that we deal with. So we've come to my favorite uh, leading the witness question. How important is it to have a dental-specific lawyer? And I guess before you answer that, how do you handle that when you're dealing with a non-dental-specific lawyer on the other side of the table, perhaps? Yeah, I, I think it's very important to have a, a dental-specific lawyer, especially if you are the person who needs the most protection in a deal. You know, a if you are a buyer or somebody buying into a practice, or even if you're you know selling a fractional interest, even selling selling your practice. You know, there's just like anything, you know, you do something once, you, you learn from your mistakes, you do it the second time, you learn a little bit more. Most of these transactions are what we refer to as one transactions. You, know, you sell your practice once, you bring on a partner once. So you really don't have the opportunity to like screw it up a few times and get better <laughs> at it over time. And so, you know, working with somebody that has seen these transactions, knows where the issues are, knows kind of what to do to avoid issues before you may never even realize that they could have occurred, you know? And, and so it's really just kind of guiding you through the process in a way that, that ensures that you're not going to have problems down the road and there's no substitute for experience. And I think, you know, our audience who are dentists, they know the first time that they did anything clinically, probably not the best job, you know? And 15, 20 years later, they're a whole heck of a lot better at that than they were back then. And it's the same thing with us. You know, we do well over a hundred practice transitions a year. We do roughly that number of leases for startups. So we know what to look for and we know we have processes just like dental offices do to how to address these deals. And some of the things, Sean, are are the actual agreements. And I think a lot of times when I'm looking at Facebook groups or, or blogs, I see people really focused on the document, the contract. And that's part of it. But there's the administration of the transaction that matters too, and doing everything you need to do to get to closing, making sure that liens are taken care of, that the real estate's being handled adequately, is the lease being assigned, is there a new lease? It's just making sure that basically general contracting this whole thing and making sure that everything that needs to be taken care of is taken care of. And it's not something that's intuitive. You know, you would have to do it wrong a few times, a few different ways, and probably do it wrong a lot of times and continue to learn. And or the alternative is you work with somebody that has already learned from the mistakes of others over their career, and they can hopefully help you to avoid making those mistakes. But hey, you know, this is the other misconception. A lot of times people think, well, yeah, if there's a bad lawyer on the other side, that's good because, you know, we've got the advantage. We don't love that at all. This can be a frustrating thing for us. That makes it more expensive, you know, because we have to spend more time on the deal, either because we're dealing with unreasonable requests or questions or proposed revisions that aren't in the transaction or in the industry, uh, or, you know, flat out having to do somebody else's work for them. And, you know, I think uh, where that also becomes problematic is 
you know, it, the cost of that increases when we have to, to deal with somebody who is unsophisticated because it just takes us longer to get to the, the end, the safe endpoint for, for our client. You know, it's kind of like a, a tennis game. Sometimes people will say, well, well, how much is it? How much is it going to cost? And I'll see again. People say, well, I found a lawyer who'll do it for X. Like, I don't know. It's like saying, how many times is your opponent going to hit the ball back and forth in a tennis game? Like, I don't know, you know, or are we just preparing a document, hitting it over the net and they say, it looks pretty good. Let's go. Yeah. That's, that can be pretty cheap. Or are they going to hit it back to us eight times with ridiculous requests that just put the client in jeopardy? And if that's the case, it takes more time. And you want your lawyer to be in that for the long haul, for the whole game. You know, like if it's a, a 15 shot volley, you want your lawyer in there for all 15 shots, not just, you know, the first three. And so I think that sometimes people kind of lose sense of, of what's really important here. You touched on it in, in that answer, but I wanted to make sure we cover the real estate aspect of a, of a dental sale as well. What are the few big pieces that you're looking for to get right there? Could be a lease or could be sale of, of a property. Yeah, I'm sorry. So you're saying with the, the sale, the practice issues, the real estate issues specific, Sean, or just generally what are some of yeah, the problems? Yeah, in general, how, does, how does real estate factor in and how are you, okay. uh, what are some of the, the big pieces that you're looking to get right on the real estate side of the transaction? Yeah. So, you know, if, if the practice owner owns the real estate, that's somewhat easier, especially oh, if the buyer is purchasing it, then it's just a sale of the real estate with a sale of the practice. If the buyer doesn't want to purchase it or can't purchase the real estate, then you're looking at a lease for that transaction. Most DSOs will not buy the real estate as part of the deal. And oftentimes owner operators don't want the real estate. So you need to be careful to make sure that the lease is something that is going to contain all the necessary provisions to make this attractive to a future buyer of the real estate. So if you're tra transitioning your practice, but not the real estate, you need to have an exit strategy for the rest of that. And a lot of times people I think kind of obsess over, well, I'm going to sell my practice and I'm going to keep the real estate and it's going to throw off rent. Okay, great. But you know, this is very specific, very niche real estate. Who's going to buy that real estate if the person that bought the practice didn't? You know, it's not like, hey, I own an apartment building and it's sort of like commodity commercial real estate. I can sell it to, you know, there's a market of people out there. I figure out what the going cap rate is and look at the cash flow and bingo, I sell it. You know, that's not the case with the dental office. So you have to be careful that when you sell that dental practice, but retain the real estate and lease it, whether it's to the owner operator or to a DSO, that lease is where the value of the real estate is derived. So you need that to be a long-term lease. You really want it to be at least 10 years for the most part, and probably a triple net lease where the tenant is responsible for all the expenses and taxes and insurance and maintenance. Because when somebody looks when you're going to try to sell that real estate at some point in the future, investors are looking at the strength of their lease and the cash flow in that. So it's not when you sell commercial real estate like this, it's not like when you sell a house that you're trying to figure out the value and an appraiser drives around and says, well, that place sold down the street for $500,000, that place sold for six hundred, but as an extra bedroom, you know, and we think that your place is worth $530,000. Great. That's not the way commercial real estate typically works. Somebody's going to look at the lease and determine what the potential cash flow is for the life of the lease, and that's what the value is going to be based on. So really getting that right is important because that's going to preserve the value of this other asset 
and maybe ensure liquidity in the future. The other thing is if you don't own the, the real estate, if there's a third-party landlord, you're going to need to assign the lease to the purchaser of the practice. The purchaser's lender is probably going to require lease term that's coterminous with the loan term. So that's usually 10 years in the dental world. So you're going to need your landlord to agree to a 10-year lease or a lease term with additional renewal terms that will add up to 10 years. And if not, then the buyer is going to have to negotiate with the landlord uh, for that additional term. And that's something I should note that sometimes people think, well, I'm going to sell my practice soon, so I don't want to renew my lease. Well, if your strategy is to sell the practice to somebody who's going to continue to practice there, then uh, letting your lease expire or almost expire isn't the right strategy. It's more important to talk to the landlord when you have the opportunity at renewal terms you know, before you know, the eve of the renewal, far enough in advance that you still have some leverage, to try to get that landlord to agree to add additional renewal terms after you've exercised that. So you have at least 10 years in the bank of renewal terms and lease term. And then you also want good assignment language where the landlord has a minimal say, if at all, in the assignment of the lease to your buyer. Because that is one of the main deal killers that we see, Sean, where somebody wants to sell their practice, the, the practice aspect of things worked out, and then they have to go to the landlord and say, well, here, we've got this young dentist who's going to buy my practice. Landlord asks for financials. The dentist sends it to him. The landlord says, you want me to agree to let you pass this lease off to somebody who's got $350,000 of student loans and they're like, you know, they've got, they're in the red, a quarter of a million dollars. I'm not going to do that. And then what are you going to do? You know, the practice is not worth nearly as much if it's a chart sale than if you're able to deliver the whole package. So that's something that really is you ask, you know, what needs to happen at the closing? That's a planning thing that needs to happen before, you know, years in advance of part of your ultimate exit strategy. Rob, uh, I think anyone that's been listening this long can understand why it's important to have a dental-specific attorney with uh, you know, a strong track record of subject matter expertise. That translates into what someone will pay for that expertise and for that due diligence, because I think we've outlined it, it's very critical. In terms of a service model and billing, uh, how does that set up in the industry? And sort of what's your philosophy there on, on how that gets handled? We've, I've seen project-based, and I've also seen hourly billing from attorneys. Yeah, we bill hourly. It's been my experience when I observe other lawyers that are on flat fee arrangements. And it may seem counterintuitive, but they just don't spend the time and the energy that needs to be done to protect their client and, and put them in the best possible position. You know, for the most part, it's from a realization standpoint, every minute they spend after they've received that flat fee, it's just decreasing returns for them. And we had two clients, new clients this week who came to us from flat fee people who said, yeah, I paid them. And then they really didn't do really all that much, you know, and they weren't that interested. They didn't really fight for me. They didn't really try to identify problems. They were hard to get in touch with. Well, they've been paid, you know, this is, they've lost interest. Everybody like that? No, you know, it's a generalization, but you know, it's human nature. You know, they're just not incentivized. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you should, hire a lawyer who's going to go out and over-lawyer a deal and do work that's unnecessary, but the lawyer should do what needs to be done. And if it doesn't require as much, then it shouldn't cost as much. If you, if that lawyer needs to spend more time to do what needs to be done to get your deal done in a way that protects you, you should pay them to do that. That incentivizes them. 
you want your lawyer working on your deal, focused and spending time on it. You don't want to disincentivize them from doing that. And like I said, it's like even quoting and, and figuring out what those flat fees are, you know, my analogy to a tennis game, you know, who knows, you know, like if you come into this, is it going to be, a, you know, a, a 15 shot volley, a 30 shot volley or a one shot ace, you know, like they, they should be three different prices, you know, and I think ultimately, sometimes it may be hard to say, well, the lawyer can just charge me whatever they want. If you don't have enough trust in that lawyer to feel comfortable that they're going to bill you honestly and ethically, the solution isn't to go find somebody who's going to do it on a flat fee. It's to find another lawyer that you trust to bill you hourly, in my opinion. Such a good point. I like the way you laid that out. As we start to wrap up here, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think would be important to mention for the audience? Yeah, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of things. I think, you know, yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing more and more opportunities in, you know, to sell to corporate buyers and DSOs. I would just say, you know, you really have to keep your eyes wide open with those. Get people involved, get your team involved, your CPA, your financial planner, your lawyer involved at the LOI stage to understand what those deals are. You know, it's the shark tank world there. You know, those people are not trying to to look out for you and, you know, understand what is really behind the curtain with those deals. You know, we'll see people that get these offers and these LOIs for these just tremendous numbers on them. You know, and that's top line of the LOI. And I don't think they read the rest of it with all the contingencies and givebacks and earnouts and escrows and obligations. And as we said before, you know, even if you're selling your practice to your associate and remaining on as an associate after the deal, or you're selling to a DSO in the same way, you have to look at the cost of not owning versus being an associate and subtract that off the top of that deal. But, you know, ultimately, Sean, it's just, you know, it's about working with the right people, the experienced people that understand your profession, understand these transactions, who are looking out for you and only you. You know, that's not brokers, that, that your team, you're paying to protect you. The name of the podcast is Dentist Puns and Money. Would you like to leave the audience with your best dental joke? I can't tell jokes about dentists, Sean, because they're my people. I, I like them <laughs> too much. So, but I can tell a, a cheesy lawyer joke, uh, especially in this, this day and age of uh, in our profession, for better or for worse, you know, there's a lot more remote work. Dentists might sometimes be envious of others that are able to work remotely. You know, here we are in 2022. The novelty of that is kind of wearing off. So uh, I'm envious of professionals and dentists who are able to actually see their people on a regular basis. But uh, my joke is, what does an attorney who works from home call his office, Sean? What does an attorney that works from home call his office? I, I don't know. Legal pad. <laughs> Legal pad. I love it. It's good stuff. I so as I, as I talk to you from my home office here, that uh, seems to be a good theme here. It's the legal pad. Uh, Rob, for, for dentists that are listening that are interested in, in getting in touch and, and entertaining a conversation with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, really to uh, go to our website, uh, yourdentallawyer.com. My contact information is up there. My colleagues and associates' emails are up there as well. And there's also a portal there where you can... Uh, submit questions or let us know what you're looking to do. And then some of the office can call you back, get some more information, see if it's something we're able to help you with. And then we move forward and schedule a call and hopefully answer questions you might have. 
That is Robert Montgomery, attorney and founder of Your Dental Lawyer, also a co-host on the Dental Amigos podcast. Rob, thank you for sharing your time, your expertise, and for being our guest on Dentists, Puns, and Money. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening and following along. Are you a dentist nearing your retirement from clinical, or have you already hung up your handpiece? Would you like to learn more about ways to reduce your taxes and generate income from your assets in retirement? Our affiliated firm, Dentist Exit Planning, might be able to help you with those two things. Schedule an initial consultation with us on our website. Our web address is dentistexit.com. There's no obligation for your initial consultation. Again, schedule that initial consultation at dentistexit.com. As for our disclosure, Dentist Exit Planning and Terrell Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The information presented should not be interpreted or construed as investment, legal, tax, financial planning, or wealth management advice. It does not substitute for personalized investment or financial planning from Dentist Exit Planning or Terrell Advisors. This podcast conveys the views and opinions of Sean Terrell and his guests, and the information herein should not be considered a solicitation to engage in a particular investment or financial planning strategy. Information presented is for educational purposes only, and past performance is not indicative of future results.